welcome to episode 44 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most willing host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. Hard to believe, but with this episode, we are just about halfway through season four of Hawaii Five-O. And these two episodes make for a good halfway point. We have episode 11, A Matter of Mutual Concern, and episode 12, 9, 10, You're Dead. I'm going to go ahead and give a mild trigger warning for A Matter of Mutual Concern. One of the characters is incredibly bigoted towards people of Asian descent, and therefore some Asian slurs are used. So be mindful of that. Also, a mild trigger warning, if you're watching the episode, you haven't, if you haven't seen it yet, there are, is a, some brief scenes of cockfighting. So if you are sensitive to animal cruelty, just a quick heads up. Without any further delay, let's go to Hawaii. Francis J. McCoy, Miami Beach, Florida. Francis J. Yeah. French McCoy. One of Big Uncle's top men. Well, that's what the ID says. Let's see if the face matches. Kimo, have the boys bring him in. Yes, sir. French McCoy doesn't take vacations. When he travels, it's strictly for business, and his business is uh, looking over new territory for Big Uncle to move into. Only the territory around here has already been divided up. Yeah. I'd say that was the message. Somebody's trying to get back to Big Uncle in Miami. Murdered, set up for everybody to see with his identification and money on him. Private property, keep out. Yeah, I wonder how Big Uncle is going to take this. Season 4, Episode 11, A Matter of Mutual Concern. Air date November 23rd, 1971. Directed by Ron Winston. This is his second of four episodes. And written by Alvin Zipinsley. This is his first of 12 episodes. 5-0 arrives at the beach to find Miami mob man French McCoy, right-hand man to Big Uncle, tied to a stake in the water, very much so dead. A big mainland boss sending his man out to Hawaii to look for new territory when the territory has already been divided up does not bode well. They bring McCoy in to find that he's been stabbed, his money still on him, and his pinky finger not. At a bowling alley, there's a craps game going on in the back room. They get the signal that the fuzz has arrived, and they quickly clear the craps table from the pool table and throw out the balls to pretend they've been playing a perfectly legit game. Danny and Chin bust in with HPD, looking for mob boss Tassie. He's kind of a bigot against anyone from Asian descent, so he's not thrilled about Chin frisking him. As they bring him in for questioning, Danny points out as they leave that someone sunk the cue ball. One of Tassie's guys calls mob boss Lee Wing, who calls mob boss Jack Afuso, who calls mob boss Kim Lo Lang, a game of telephone about French McCoy's demise. Steve talks to Tassie at 5-0 headquarters. He points out that McCoy's missing pinky fits right in with a Samoan tradition when it comes to dealing with rival chiefs. Tassie claims not to share those old superstitions, and he wants to call his lawyers. But Steve isn't arresting him. He's a marked man on the streets now. If Big Uncle thinks that he killed his guy, he'll send someone out to take care of it. Tassie takes his bigoted ass out of the office, leaving Steve to worry about an impending mob war. He sends Danny to Miami to check up on Big Uncle, Chin Ho to run down some names, and he and Kono go talk to Lee Wing. Steve asks Lee about French McCoy, but Lee maintains that he didn't know he was in the islands, nor that he was even coming, so he couldn't possibly have anything to do with McCoy's murder. Steve presses and Lee's nephew, Lai Po, 
gets defensive. Lee apologizes for him and Steve asks if any one of the other mob heads would be foolish enough to take out McCoy because one of the four families did. They might have a truce as long as no one oversteps their territory, but because one of them was foolish enough to take out McCoy, Big Uncle will send someone to wipe them all out. Steve leaves him with that thought. Lee is concerned and asks his nephew to organize a meeting of the families. At the meeting, Lee asks Tassi if he killed McCoy, as when they met about McCoy coming to Honolulu, Tassi had insisted that they kill him. Tassi points out that they all agreed not to touch him, and he honored that agreement. But he will make the person who did kill him and imitate the customs of his people pay. Tassi storms out. Afuso is sure that Tassi did it, and in 24 hours, they'll be battling Big Uncle. Afuso wants to leave Tassi to him, but Lee points out that if Big Uncle takes out Tassi, he'll take his territory. A better solution would be for one of them to take out Tassi and let someone in Tassi's family take over. That sends a message to Big Uncle that the islands are closed for business. Kim volunteers, but Lee thinks they need someone with a little more experience. Chin fills Steve in on McCoy, and then Danny calls from Miami. From the questionable connection, Steve learns from Danny that Big Uncle's big gun, Jake Hirsch, is on the way. They need to put Tassie in jail in order to protect him and get Hirsch off the island as soon as he arrives. Afuso calls Tassie and sets up a meeting at the warehouse, claiming he knows who killed McCoy and who's setting him up. Tassie agrees to meet and hangs up, revealing that he's talking with Kim, who's been filling him in on the plan to take him out. They then decide to take out Afuso. Man, you just can't trust a mob boss. Someone calls Steve and sends him to Afuso's warehouse, where Afuso has set up a mannequin in his office while he lurks about with a gun. Unfortunately, he lurks backwards, right into Tossie's knife. Tossie leaves right as HPD and 5-0 arrive. A parking lot chase ends in Tossie's arrest. A quick frisk finds Tossie's knife in a severed finger. He tells Steve that it was self-defense because Afuso was setting him up to be gunned down. That'll fly in court, I'm sure. Steve meets big gun Jake Hirsch at the airport and ensures with Chin Ho's help that he'll be on the first plane back to Miami. But Steve knows that something is still up. This episode is fun because it is a mob takeover story, but it's not the mob takeover story that you think it is. From the very beginning, we think that it is Big Uncle, which is a great name for a mobster. I don't care who you are. Big Uncle from Miami is looking to encroach on the Hawaii territory. He's looking to expand his business, and that would involve pushing out the four families that currently own Oahu, and they're not keen on that. Apparently, he sends out French McCoy, his right-hand man, to investigate things, and French ends up dead. This is a pretty striking opening to the episode because he has been stabbed to death. Obviously, 1971, we're not showing a whole lot of blood, but he's been tied to a stake in the water, in the ocean, and left there to be found. And his ID and his money are still on him because clearly this is a billboard that Hawaii is closed for business to Miami mobsters. And it is a very striking opening to see this guy who was dead when he was put in the water, obviously, but still tied to a stake and left out there. So it's definitely eye-catching. I can understand why it would be used to send a message. So Steve knows it, and he knows when he sees that McCoy's pinky's been severed, it immediately has him zero in on Tassie, who is Samoan and head of one of the four families that currently has territory there. 
Steve explains cutting off a rival chief's pinky and sending it back to them after you kill them is a message that they're not welcome. And of course, Tassi denies all of this, but he likes to deny it with a whole lot of bigotry and racial slurs. He has no love for anyone of Asian descent. And that is apparent the first time we meet him in the back room of the bowling alley, which I have to give them props. They're shooting craps and they get the fuzz light and they clear the, the table and put out the billiard balls like they've been shooting pool the whole time. Bravo to that quick change. And bravo to Danny for looking at the billiard table and going. In case you hadn't noticed, one of you sank the cue ball. So he knows that they were probably doing something illegal right before they got in there. He, and that's a great kind of funny way of him pointing out that, yeah, I know. Don't think I don't. Don't think you have us fooled. But they go to talk to Tazi and, and say that he needs to come in for questioning. And Danny tells Chin to frisk him. And Tazi does not want this because Chin is Chinese. And he says so. And Chin is more than happy to ignore his request and search him anyway. He, so he goes into the office and we get something interesting here in that in the conversation that he has with Steve, he asks for his lawyers because he denies obviously killing French McCoy. And he says that he does not follow the old superstitions like cutting off pinkies, but he's offended that someone has used it. But he asks for his lawyers if he's going to be charged. And Steve basically says, no, I'm not going to arrest you. In part, that's probably because he doesn't have enough evidence to arrest him. Tassi probably knows that. But then he puts that bug in his ear of, I don't have to. You're a marked man on the streets. Big Uncle's going to come in and he's going to get rid of you because of what you've done. I'm going to let the trash take itself out. And he is trash because he refers to his fellow mob bosses as racial slurs because Li Wing is Chinese, I believe. Afuso is Japanese and Kim Lo Lang is Korean. And this is kind of more glaring because once again, we have David Apatashu back playing an Asian character and he is definitely not Asian. The difference is this time around when we first saw him in Face of the Dragon, he was sporting the eye makeup and the bronzer to make him look more Asian. This episode, he's not. We are just basically saying he's Asian and they didn't bother scotch taping his eyes. So I'm guessing we're going to call that progress. But again, we still have David Apatashu in a bit of racist casting. So anyway, he refers to them all as racial slurs. And Steve gives him a language lesson about that. This is Hawaii, USA. It's time for your English lesson. Repeat slowly after me. Japanese, Chinese, Korean. Now you know what you can do with your English lesson, McGarren. So he's a really delightful character and he takes his bigoted ass out of the office. And Steve is rightly concerned about a mob war because Big Uncle is a very powerful mainland mobster and he is not going to like that Fridge McCoy is dead. So we're gearing up at this point for a mob war. We're anticipating that along with Steve. And that's what we think we get until Lee Wing calls his meeting with the other mob bosses. So he's already talked to McGarrett about this. Steve's already come to him and questioned him about French McCoy and his, and Lee's nephew Lipo has already had his little exclamation about in, in defense of his uncle, which is kind of understandable. Steve also plants the bug in Lee Wing's ear that they know one of the four families did this. 
And that big uncle will come in and wipe everyone out. One of you is a fool. Because whoever stuck a knife in him declared war on the boss of bosses on the mainland. And in a war between big uncle and you four bush leaguers, who do you think is going to get wiped out? So if you and your associates and all your family don't want to end up dead, maybe you better tell me you hit French McCoy. See you. This obviously concerns Lee Wing, and he calls a meeting for everybody to get together. And once again, Tassi denies having anything to do with it, but he says he will kill the person who did it for rudely imitating Samoan custom. And he leaves, and the other three decide that Tossie probably did it. Tossie had wanted French McCoy killed when they initially had the meeting about him, so they think he went ahead and did it, that he didn't keep his word. Lee Wing, who is the oldest of the mob bosses, who's obviously been in business forever, comes up with the plan to take out Tossie. Afuso, who goes on and on about how he is in the middle of inventory, that he can't be dealing with all of this right now because he's in the middle of inventory. And as someone who has worked retail and has had to do multiple inventories, I relate to his annoyance. But anyway, he thinks that they should just let Big Uncle take Tossie out. But as Lee points out, if they do that, Big Uncle gets his territory and they would be better off taking Tossie out themselves and letting someone in Tossie's family take over. And there's a great conversation about that because they're like, won't we get into a bit of a mob war locally because we take out Tossie? And Lee says, no, he he killed his own cousin to become chief. There will be a token protest, but they're not really going to care that much. So that goes to show you just how much they dislike Tossie. (laughs) Not only other people, but his own damn family doesn't even like him that well. So no one's going to be too sad if he dies. Now, Kim, he is the youngest of the four and seems very eager and he's very hip and he offers to do the assassination. But Lee Wing says it needs to be someone with a cooler hat and a little more experience. And he looks at Afuso and Afuso looks really thrilled to be called to the carpet to do this because he's in the middle of inventory, damn it. So he is basically like, yes, I will murder him so I can get back to inventory. I don't know what the warehouse setup was supposed to be. Because obviously Afuso calls Tassi and says, hey, I know who's setting you up. Let's discuss because I don't want this person setting me up later. Come to my warehouse. And of course, Tassi has to be a bigoted piece of shit about it. But he ends up agreeing to come to the warehouse. And that's when we realize that Kim has been double crossing everyone. And he's telling Tassi that, yeah, they're going to take him out. So he's aware. And so he goes in knowing that this is a setup. But I'm still curious about the setup. I'm guessing that what was supposed to happen was Afuso puts a mannequin at his desk, puts a hat on it and everything, dresses it, and sends his guards out because he's like, this will be done. I don't need you to hang around. Quick and easy. So I'm guessing the idea was Hasi would come, the warehouse would be dimly lit, he would think the mannequin was Afuso, and so Afuso could get the drop on him and shoot him, I guess. I don't know. Because we do see Afuso kind of creeping around in his own warehouse. So I'm guessing he was going to find a place to hang out so he could spy and see when Tassi came in and he would be able to shoot him. However, because Tassi is already aware of this plot, he's already in the warehouse and he's hiding by some crates in the dark and Afuso backs like right into him and right into his knife and Tassi kills him. Little does Tassi know he's been set up because someone's called 5-0 and told him to get down to this warehouse at this time. So as he's leaving from this murder, 5-0 and HPD roll up. Now here's something 
It was just something that I noticed and I know why they did it, but it never fails to make me giggle. Tossie goes out to his car. He unlocks his car and gets in. The thing is, is that his driver's side window is rolled down. Not only should should he have locked his damn car, because what's the point? But the fact that he went to the trouble of putting his key in to unlock it instead of just reaching in and unlocking it. Now, I know that might seem wild to younger people. But yeah, cars back in the long, long ago, you just it was a a button that you pushed down and pulled up on the side of the car door. And so he could have just reached in and done that. Now, I know it's not supposed to be that way, that he is that it's for glare purposes and reflection purposes. So we're supposed to pretend that the window was up. I think it just would have been better if he didn't lock his car. Like if he, they didn't have him go through the motions of unlocking his car. If he just came out and got in his car, nobody would think anything of it. I mean, it was 1971. Who was locking their cars anyway? Hardly anyone. And who's going to lock their car when they're going to a murder? I don't know of anybody who's going to do that. Anyway, we are then treated to a really raucous parking lot chase. When Tossie gets caught, he said that the car goes up to 110, but he could only get it up to 90. And I'm like, you were not doing 90 in that parking lot, sir. That is a pretty sizable warehouse parking lot. And you were leading them co- those cops on a chase, but you were not you were not doing 90 at all. No, you were maybe getting up to 40. I don't think you were even getting, going that fast. So Tossie is caught and he is caught with the knife used to kill a Fuso and a Fuso's pinky. This will not be the last time that we see somebody's finger in a jar. So Natasia is in jail for killing Afuso, so that is two down. And Steve receives word that Big Uncle's big gun, Jake Hirsch, is coming into the airport. So they get Tassie arrested. And they were doing that anyway to make sure that he was going to be safe from Jake Hirsch. As much as they were going to leave him to his own devices, they decide, no, they don't want this mob war and that's what's going to happen. So they, they were going to arrest Tassie anyway. He just helped them by making the charges a lot stronger. But Jake Hirsch is still coming in. They meet him at the airport and turn his ass right around. Chin Ho waits and he's supposed to take the next flight out to Miami. However, when Chin comes back from the airport, he says that he didn't take the very next flight. He took the 515 and Steve asks why and he goes because he already had tickets for that. So he was literally only coming out because he came in on like the one o'clock or the three o'clock flight. I can't remember, but he was only going to be there for a few hours which would fit kind of with a hit. But Steve is really, really suspicious about all of this. And so he calls in the two remaining members of the families and kind of puts everything together in the sense that the mob takeover is coming from inside the house. And he says, one of you plotted to get rid of the others. And he tells them because once again, Lipo comes to Lee Wing's defense and he says, I don't have to arrest either one of them. All I have to do is wait because one will kill the other and then I just have to pick up who's left. We had this hint of that before, but now we see it full on that, yes, this this entire time the mob takeover was not coming from Miami. It was coming from inside the house, one of their own. And that is confirmed when Kim and Lee Wing meet and we find out that Kim has been orchestrating all of this to get rid of the granddads, as he calls them, and to take over Oahu. And Lee Wing, who is older, past retirement age, offers to let Kim buy his territory and he'll retire. He'll leave the islands and he'll retire. But Kim refuses. So after that, there's only one thing that Lee Wing can do. 
this episode has a mob full of excellent guest stars. Let's take a look at them. As I said, Lee Wing was played by David Apatishu. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in Face of the Dragon. Kim Lo Lang was played by Mark Marno. He appeared in episodes of Frontier Circus and Have Gun Will Travel. He also appeared in the movies A Majority of One and Diamond Head. Tasi was played by Manu Tupo. This is his first of five episodes. He also appeared in episodes of Police Story, Operation Petticoat, Barney Miller, Fantasy Island, Magnum P.I., Tales of the Gold Monkey, Voyagers, The A-Team, and Baywatch. He appeared in the movies Chief Zabu, Love Affair, Hurricane, A Man Called Horse, and Hawaii. And he appeared in the TV movies Into the Homeland, Murder in Paradise, and Bear Essentials. Jack Afuso was played by Seth Sakai. This is his third of 23 episodes. We also saw him in Grandstand Play Part 1 and For a Million, Why Not? Lipo was played by Michael Leong. This is his fourth of four episodes. Big Gun Jake Hirsch was played by Nick Nicholas. This is his second of five episodes. We also saw him in And a Time to Die. And our policeman was played by Harold Kim Han. This is his only credit. Our writer, Alvin Sapinsley, in addition to his 12 episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also wrote 14 episodes of The Front Page, 3 episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, 15 episodes of Suspense, 7 episodes of Studio One, 10 episodes of Robert Montgomery Presents, 3 episodes of The Restless Gun, 4 episodes of Adventures in Paradise, 4 episodes of Detectives, 5 episodes of The Virginian, 3 episodes of Minute Law, and 6 episodes of Night Gallery. He also has credit as the creator of Spencer's Pilots. He has a writing credit for the movie Invitation to a Gunfighter. And he has writing credits for the TV movies Codename Heraclitus, Moon of the Wolf, Sherlock Holmes in New York, Roger and Harry the Matera Target, Once Upon a Family, and Desperate Voyage. And that is a matter of mutual concern. I really like this episode because even though I'm not always like the biggest into like the mob episodes, really like this one because of the swerve in that it's a mob war story, but not the story you think. I love the backstabbing, literally, that occurs. I also like how we have four very distinct personalities when it comes to these mobsters. None of them are necessarily generic. Maybe it leans a little too into racial stereotypes, but personality-wise, you have four very distinct personalities. And they play off well with each other. They play off McGarrett well. And I love that we have this over-looming threat of some guy called Big Uncle from Miami. I mean, how do you not love that? It's totally entertaining. For an episode full of severed pinkies, it's a lot of fun. Give this one a watch. <laughs> Your boy, isn't he? Wrong. 
You know nobody with a record can handle a fighter. Boxing commissions get very uptight about that. Come on, come on, Edmonds, don't con me. The manager of record? Yes, I know who the manager of record is. I also know that Davis is your boy. Now, is that why you're here? piece of merchandise gets damaged. A man likes to know what happened, that's all. Okay, if that's all. But let me give you some advice. Don't even spit on the sidewalk. Dig. Episode 12, 910 You're Dead. Air date November 30th, 1971. Directed by Leo Penn. This is his first of two episodes. And written by Mel Goldberg. This is his ninth of 12 episodes. An ex-boxer by the name of Willie Stone is hawking papers in front of a sports venue advertising an upcoming match featuring up-and-comer Robbie Davis. Inside at the weigh-in, Willie interrupts, trying to talk to Robbie, but he stopped. Later that evening at the boxing matches, Robbie's trainer is giving him a massage in preparation for his match. The trainer steps out of the room long enough for Willie to sneak in, and with tears streaming down his cheeks, he smashes Robbie's hand with a wrench. Steve meets Detroit mob member Matty Edmonds at the airport. He knows that Robbie is his boy in name only as he's not legally allowed to manage a boxer. Edmonds knows this too. But Robbie is still an investment and he just wants to find out what happened to him. Steve warns him that better be the only thing he does. The doctor informs Edmonds that Robbie's hand is virtually destroyed. They can make it functional, but he'll never be able to box again. Edmonds wants a second opinion. He refuses to believe that Robbie is done. Honolulu was only supposed to be an easy stop on his way to Madison Square Garden. Edmonds is looking for Willie. He offers a guy running a cockfight $1,000 for info pointing to him. He adds that there's another $1,000 for the person who points Willie out, but stresses that he just wants to know where he is. He doesn't want him harmed. 5-0 is also looking for Willie. Kono comes in with the news of the $1,000 bounty. Steve wants to know everything about Willie, and he wants a tale on Edmonds, and he wants to know any and all Detroit syndicate soldiers that might be in the area. Robbie's manager and Edmonds associate Cal begs Edmonds not to ask Detroit for a hit on Willie because of this. It won't go well. He tells him that he has another boy that he can train who will be just as good as Robbie. Edmonds doesn't listen he talks to Detroit. Kona comes up with Willie's history. As it turns out, Willie has a lot of friends, and so far, none of them are willing to trade him for $1,000. Chin's switchboard contact also comes through with a transcript of Edmund's hit request. Steve goes to talk to Edmonds as he lounges by the hotel pool. He tells him that it would be stupid to put out a contract on Willie, so why did he do it if he's not stupid? Edmonds' only reply is to complain that Steve is blocking his view. Steve warns Edmonds that if anything happens to Willie, it'll be a long time before he gets back to Detroit. Willie ducks into Mama's deli. He asks Mama for a bag of food, and Mama turns him down at first, but then relents. She asks Willie why he busted that poor boy's hand, but he only says that he didn't do it for money. He promises to pay Mama back before going out the back door. Detroit law enforcement sends a stack of syndicate soldier pigs to 5 Steve instructs Danny, Chin, and Kono to take the pictures to the airport and keep an eye on any flights incoming from Chicago or Detroit. Kono is minding the final flights and misses the hitman whose picture is not there. The hitman makes a call to Edmonds while Kono makes a call to Steve. There's a soldier on the rock and they've missed him. Danny checks out Willie's apartment finding mementos of his career. He finds a reel of old fight footage that he takes back to the office. 
Chin calls in with a lead on Willie. Danny and Chin go talk to Mama, who, with a little persuasion to help keep Willie safe, points to May. Steve leaves T Danny and Chin outside of May's bar and goes in to talk to her. She tells Steve that Willie's scared, but she takes him to the storage basement where he's hiding. He doesn't appreciate May's betrayal. Steve asks Willie why he smashed Robbie's hand, but he only says that he did it for Robbie. Steve convinces Willie to come with him, but Willie's ruminations lead him to jail, the thought of which makes him panic. He decks Steve and makes a run for it. So I think if you're paying attention at all, you know why Willie did what he did. Because it's kind of there throughout the episode. You kind of get a sense of why he did what he did. He doesn't outright say it until the very end, but you kind of understand. Because Willie was once a great fighter. Five-O actually watches the, the reels of his fights. And Danny keeps saying that he's beautiful. He was beautiful. But now he's clearly brain damaged from repetitive hits to his head. He's mentally disabled now and reduced to selling papers in front of the venue and relying on this huge network of friends that he has. And you see in that apartment, he's got all of these mementos from this amazing career. And this is what he's left with from that is probably multiple concussions and now brain damage. He's, I believe Edmonds at one point refers to him as a punchy. This is what they mean when they're talking about punch drunk. Your brain never works right when it's been repeatedly abused and sloshed around inside of your skull. And that's where Willie is. So he's a very sympathetic character. And at the very beginning, you are wondering why in the world would he smash Robbie's hands? What, why would he do this? But as you go through the episode and you get to know Willie a little bit more and you realize how self-aware he is about his state and how reluctant he is to talk about what, why he did what he did and that we know he didn't do it for money, it starts to become apparent before we get the actual explanation. So Willie is a very sympathetic character and you want nothing more than 5-0 to find him and keep him safe because Edmonds is unhinged. He's a very single-minded, obsessive man when it comes to pushing Robbie to be a boxing champion. This is a long-term goal. He is playing a long con here. He is a long-term investment. And the doctor saying that he's never going to box again does not sit well with him. He will not give up on this. And he is so incensed that this kid's career has probably been ended that he's willing to put a hit out on Willie. Now, Cal, who is no stranger to mob activities, obviously, he's working as a manager and quote unquote owner because that's how they refer to him in boxing. So he's Robbie's owner and manager in proxy of Edmonds. He knows how this works and he begs him, do not call Detroit about this. Don't ask for a hit for this. So you call Detroit. You send for a soldier. Matt, that's crazy. The big guys, you know how they operate. That's your league. Drop it, Colin. They'll never okay the contract. You don't hit guys like Willie. Beat up on him like you did Robbie, but a hit. Maddie, think. Beat up on Willie. Pay for it yet if you have to, but later, quietly, on your own. Don't pull a soldier out of Detroit. Don't involve the syndicate. Edmonds is just too focused on vengeance that he orders this hit. 
thankfully, because of Chin Ho's contacts, we end up knowing that, yes, they're going to be sending a soldier out to the islands. 5-0 is now aware of this. So now they have to stake out the airport to see if they can find this guy. And they get a stack of syndicate soldiers from Detroit. I think we've dealt with the Detroit mob before. I have no idea why I I didn't realize that Detroit was a real big place for mob guys. But I guess, hey, automobiles and Motown. How could you go wrong? Anyway, so they're staking out the airport looking for the syndicate soldier. And they're going through the pictures as they come through waiting because they know it's going to happen like in the next 24, 48 hours. They're going to be sending someone. And so they stake out those flights and they don't see the guy. We kind of see the guy. The camera lingers on this young guy that walks past Kono. And so we kind of are clued in that this might be somebody. And Kono looks at him and does look through his pictures, but that guy's face is not in the pictures. And then he goes to the phone booth. And it's a great near miss scene because he goes to the phone booth and calls Edmonds to let him know he's there. And as he's on the phone with Edmonds, Kono goes to the very next phone booth to call Steve and say the last flight came in and nobody matching the pictures was on the flights. So Steve says what we know, and that is there is a soldier on the island and we missed him. Yes, he's literally right next to Kono, but you don't expect Kono to know that. The key, though, for this hitman to be able to do his job is they have to find Willie. Willie is very fortunate in having that huge network of friends who's helping him, and none of them will give him up for that $1,000. They will also not give him up to the police. They know Willie's done something wrong. He assaulted Robbie, but they don't want to see him in jail. They don't want to see him arrested. So they're not giving him up to the police and they're not giving him up for this bounty. They're just going to protect him. But he ends up turning up at Mama's Deli so he can get some food. And Mama presses him about why he did this. Why'd you do it, Willie? They say he was a nice boy. They say you don't even know him. Why'd you have to go and... Oh, we... That white bread ain't no good for you. A trainer told me that. You don't go in that boy's dressing room and pass his hands. Not for no reason. I know you, Willie. Willie, did somebody pay you? You say you know me? And you think I can do a thing like that for money? So he has a very personal reason for doing this that no one is touching on yet. But Mama, you know, does help him, gives him the bag of food, and he leaves. So later, Danny and Chin get the word that he was seen at Mama's place, which she scolded him from because he came in the front door and she goes, why don't you use the back door, which is where you're going to go out of because you're in trouble. I'm not going to have you hanging around. But they go talk to Mama and they tell her about the bounty and that they're going to keep him safe. We all want to keep Willie safe, but that's not going to happen if he's still on the streets. Mama points him in the direction of May. She owns a bar and is a friend of Willie's. And she tells McGarrett that he only comes to her anymore when he's scared. And so he And he's very scared right now. But she leads him to where he's hiding, like in the basement. When you get this scene, you think that Steve is going to be able to convince him to come with him and they'll be able to keep him safe. And the rest of the episode will be trying to find this hitman and try to get Edmonds for this. You think Willie's going to be okay, streets up there, you're a dead man. I just soon be dead as locked up in jail. Why? Why did you do it? I just had to. I had to. Well, you knew it had to cost you. I wasn't thinking about that. What were you thinking about? I just knew when I seen him. I just, just, 
Steve can be sometimes he really should have poured on the kindness a little bit more maybe approached him a little softer than what he did I think that would have gone a long way but he didn't and did not deter Willie from thinking that he might go to jail that's in Willie's head and as Steve's leaving him out so we're like almost there he's leading him out Willie is ruminating about jail and he decks Steve it's rare to see Steve knocked on his ass and not cold in that kind of situation but he was, and Willie takes off running. We have once again lost Willie, and he's basically out of the frying pan into the fire because we know that there's this hitman out there. Now, the hitman is interesting. So Steve talks to Edmonds and lets him know that he knows he ordered the hit. And at the time, Edmonds is getting like a lotion rubbed down by some beautiful woman that he has met by the pool and dismisses her so he can talk to Steve. And I'm like, where did you find her? Because it's Albert Paulson. He's not a bad looking dude. But Edmonds himself is kind of a piece of shit and kind of exudes that piece of shitness. I don't, I, I, you must have money. You got to have money. You must have flashed some money. Anyway, so they're talking about the pool and Steve basically says, I know that you put out this hit. And if anything happens to Willie, I'm going to come for you. You're not going to see Detroit again. And Edmonds is like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So then we have the hitman arrive. The hitman's an interesting character because he is a young man. He looks like a kid. He looks like he's probably in his early 20s. He's a young guy. Obviously, you're not going to suspect him. And he's laying out by the pool with Edmonds, lounging, waiting for this bounty to come through. And it does from some little bastard who's hanging out with his girlfriend and sees Willie and doesn't tell her what's going on. But like manhandles her across the street and they're sitting there pretending to be canoodling as Willie passes by. So he gets a sight of him and goes, yes, that's who that is. He then tells his girlfriend to run past Willie and don't stop. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he slaps her on the ass and tells her to run. And she does. I hope she kept running and did not run back to him because he's kind of a lousy boyfriend. If you're going to cash in on a bounty on someone, let me know what the plan is. Let me know what we're doing. And I want my cut. Otherwise, you're a shitty boyfriend. This is a shitty boyfriend. And I hope Luella didn't go back to him. Anyway, so they make this show and he runs up past Willie a little bit, calling her name. And then when Willie passes by, he turns and looks at him and says, you know, women, what can you do? But he gets a good look at Willie. So he knows and he calls it in. So he gets this bounty. Well, now Edmonds knows and he tries to get the hitman to leap into action. And the hitman has his own plan. I got an instinct. See, the man's tired of running. He's like an animal. He's trapped, dangerous, ready to strike back. So we let him sit and sweat an hour, maybe two, until, like, inside, he's just aching for somebody to come and get him. And what I love about this is that this is a young kid. 
like I said, he's probably in his early 20s. He's absolutely got ego to spare, but he knows what he's doing. He's a trained professional. It's kind of alarming that that this baby-faced kid has probably made enough hits to be confident in how he does his job. He's a little psychopath. He's found his career, and good for him. But yeah, it's a little disturbing when you kind of pull back and think about it, that this college-age kid is making a living as a premier hitman for the Detroit mob. But anyway, Edmonds relents and chooses to go with the hitman. He's put his confidence in the hitman that Willie is going to be taken out. So what's interesting is, is that Edmonds doesn't seem to know that there's a tail on him because they make arrangements to go do this hit together. Edmonds leaves the hotel. Kono follows him. The hitman gave his itinerary, but Edmonds doesn't leave with him from the hotel. He picks him up on the side of the road like he's picking up a hitchhiker. And it's the hitman that realizes that Kono's on their tail. So they bail on him at a stoplight. Really well done. They end up sitting through like two lights changes. People are pissed. They're honking horns. Kono then realizes that something is wrong, runs up and sees that they bailed the car. Like literally just bailed the car, left the car. Good luck, everybody else. Just screwing up everyone else's day. I feel like screwing up traffic is up there with murder. Death penalty for them both. Anyway, 5 is looking for Willie. 5 is now looking for Edmonds and the hitman, and they know they have to find him before they find Willie. But unfortunately, without that tail, they're kind of screwed. And it's Edmonds that finds Willie first. You know who else were absolute champions? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Willie Stone was played by the absolutely wonderful Moses Gunn. He was Old Man on A Man Called Hawk. Moses Gage on Father Murphy. Joe Kagan on Little House on the Prairie. Carl Dixon on Good Times. And Jebediah Nylinger on The Cowboys. He also appeared in episodes of McLeod, Quincy, Emmy, Maud, Vegas, Highway to Heaven, Hill Street Blues, Amen, Tales from the Crypt, Gabriel's Fire, and Homicide, Life on the Street. He appeared in the movies Heartbreak Ridge, Firestarter, The Neverending Story, Amityville 2, Rollerball, Cornbread, Earl and Me, The Iceman Cometh, Shaft, Shaft's Big Score, and The Great White Hope. He appeared in the TV movies of Mice and Men, Haunts of the Very Rich, John Mercer Langston, The House of Dyes Drear, Bates Motel, Perfect Harmony, which my sister and I watched the shit out of, Memphis, and No Room for Opal, and he was in the miniseries The Women of Brewster Place, The Contender, and Roots. As I said, Edmonds was played by Albert Paulson. This is his third of four episodes. He also appeared in the episodes Just Lucky, I guess, and The Guarnerius Caper. Duke the Hitman was played by Frank Webb. He also appeared in episodes of Bonanza, The Virginian, Room 222, Marcus Welby, MD, Mission Impossible, High Chaparral, and Lassie. He appeared in the movies Too Late the Hero, The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, and The Bridge at Rim Again. May was played by Lynn Hamilton. She was Donna Harris on Sanford and Son, Verdi Grant Foster on The Waltons, Emma Johnson on 227, Vivian Potter on Generations, Sissy Johnson on Dangerous Women, Salida Jones on Sunset Beach, and Judge P. Fulton on The Practice. 
She also appeared in episodes of Room 222, Mannix, Gunsmoke, Longstreet, Ironside, Barnaby Jones, Good Times, Starsky and Hutch, The Rock Files, Knight Rider, Riptide, Leave it to Beaver, Amen, Hunter, The Golden Girls, Sister Sister, NYPD Blue, Judging Amy, and Cold Case. She appeared in the movies Baby's Breath, The Vanishing, Legal Eagles, Lead Belly, Lady Sings the Blues, and Brother John. She appeared in the TV movies The Jesse Owens Story, Elvis and Me, The Waltons Thanksgiving Reunion, and Walton's Easter. And she was in the miniseries Roots the Next Generation. Robbie Davis was played by Henry Porter. This is his only credit. Cal Phelps was played by Robert Costa. This is his seventh of 12 episodes. Mama was played by Mama Luna. She also appeared in episodes of The Brian Keith Show. Dr. Fukada was played by Seth Sakai. This is his fourth of 23 episodes, including the episode we previously discussed, A Matter of Mutual Concern. Luella was played by Josie Over. This is her fifth of 16 episodes. And Fred was played by Gary Ava. This is his fifth of five episodes. And in an uncredited role, the janitor was played by Lippy Espinda. This is his fourth of 11 episodes. Our director, Leo Penn. Yes, he is the father of Sean, Chris, and Michael Penn. In addition to directing two episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also directed 19 episodes of Ben Casey, 9 episodes of Dr. Kildare, 4 episodes of I Spy, 8 episodes of Run for Your Life, 3 episodes of The Virginian, 9 episodes of Judge for the Defense, 3 episodes of Room 222, 12 episodes of Bonanza, 3 episodes of Little House on the Prairie, 5 episodes of Canon, 3 episodes of Moving On, 19 episodes of Marcus Well BMD, 4 episodes of Switch, 6 episodes of Kojak, 3 episodes of Starsky and Hodge, 10 episodes of Barnaby Jones, 4 episodes of Ramblin' Man, 3 episodes of Brett Maverick, 6 episodes of Heart to Heart, 5 episodes episodes of the Mississippi, three episodes of Paper Dolls, nine episodes of Trapper John and D, three episodes of St. Elsewhere, three episodes of Magnum P.I., three episodes of Columbo, nine episodes of In the Heat of the Night, and 27 episodes of Matlock. He also has directing credits for the movie A Man Called Adam, and he has directing credits for the TV movies Quarantined, The Country Western Murders, The Thirteenth Day, The Story of Esther, and Hellinger's Law. He has directing credits for the miniseries Testimony of Two Men and The Darkest Secrets of Harvest Home. And he has 61 acting credits, including a recurring role on Ben Casey. And that is 910 You're Dead. Really enjoy this episode because I think what makes it work so well is that Willie is such a sympathetic character. Moses Gunn is brilliant in his portrayal of him because he's obviously a man who was once something great and has paid an ultimate price for that greatness. And you can understand why Willie has so many friends because he is someone who is so sweet and kind and harmless and that he would do something like this is quite shocking. But when you find out his reason for it, you totally kind of understand where he was coming from. You also have in Edmonds, like I said, a singularly obsessed man who is going to extremes to extract vengeance on a man that is, I don't want to say that he's not worth it, but it's, it just seems like overkill. It's just too much to do to Willie, especially after all that life's done to him. And you get 5 kind of walking an interesting line here in that 
Willie is, in a sense, a criminal because of what he's done to Robbie, but their overwhelming need to protect him really kind of shines through. They would much rather get the bigger fish in Edmonds and the Hitman and prevent something that's just so wildly unnecessary. You also get a great twist ending that you do not see coming because it looks so bleak and then you get this twist. It's just so good. Just an excellent episode. Definitely give it a watch. Willie Stone, you big stupid. You're coming off the street. There's a back door. Use it on your way out. And that is episode 44 of Bookum Dano. Two mob stories back to back, but two very different kinds of mob stories. We have a mob war a battle over territory, a lot of backstabbing and takeover happenings. And then in the other, we have a mob man who is just obsessed with boxing and uses his mob resources for questionable reasons. So two very, very interesting episodes. Really well done. Both of them are. The guest casts on both of them are fabulous. Both of them are entertaining. Just really good episodes. It can't be easy to do two mob stories back to back in a season, especially like in the middle of a season, but they pulled it off. They totally pulled it off. I really enjoyed them both. And as always, I enjoy you. Thank you for listening. I always appreciate your ears. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want to know how much I don't know about boxing and the mob, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So make sure the guy that you're setting up isn't setting you up. And be the kind of friend that your friends wouldn't turn you in for $1,000. Until next time, aloha!